Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Katrina Meredith is pursuing her PhD in community psychology. She's studying terrorism and extremism. She grew up in a New Age cult from the age of 10 all the way to 20. And she currently lives in Atlanta, Georgia with her two children and her husband, who she met shortly after leaving the cult. In the 17 years since her exit, she has steadily worked to understand and resolve the trauma she experienced in a very abusive group setting while applying that knowledge to helping others. She is a writer, activist, and co-founder of StrongerAfter.org, a resource for those harmed by coercive control groups. She is a colleague and a friend, and you get to hear from her three times. Here's the first of her three conversations with me. I know you will enjoy them and get a lot from them. Here's Katrina now. Welcome, Katrina, today. I'm so happy to have you on the show. I'm so happy to be able to see you. It's been too long. And I I know that we are colleagues and now friends and we care about some of the same same ish yep. issues because we overlap in so many ways, not only through wanting to educate people about this subject, but also as parents. So I want you to be able to introduce yourself and then I will talk about how we're going to do something a little differently today than you've done in the past. So go for it. Sounds good. Hi, my name is Katarina Meredith. I live in Atlanta with my two kids and my husband, our dog, our cat. (laughs) And I'm currently, I just started last semester, I'm getting my PhD in community psychology. And specifically, I'm studying extremism and terrorism. And coming from a cult myself, that uh, it's, it's a good fit. Let's put it that way. So, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated in how groups work, but less of, I mean, not even just groups, but what do we as humans want? What, what, what makes us feel like we belong, like we have sense, like we have purpose? And how can that be used, manipulated and used against us in the end? And then identity, how do we um, change when we become part of a group or part of something else, something bigger? How can we change back to ourselves when we leave that, when we become a former member of something? What are all the processes and sometimes the hurdles and what can help people in finding themselves after they've been through an experience like that? So I know that when you talked about being a former member, you've had an opportunity to tell your story and there's a lot to tell. And I'm sure even in the times that you've told it, it's only been just a fraction of all of your experiences, but you've had to sort of narrow it down into a bite-sized piece, (laughs) uh, which is not easy to do when there have been so many experiences. But if you can just briefly mention the group that you are referring to, and then just a little bit about that story, just sort of how you came to be in that group uh, when you were there and and when you left, just so we have a little bit of the chronology. Absolutely. So when I was 10 years old, my parents joined a small new age cult. Uh, it was a German cult, so it was called Lichtoase, Light Oasis in English. Um, but we refer to ourselves as the family or the experiment, which is nothing new. I know it's <laughs> what every other cult calls themselves. <laughs> so 
uh, trying to recreate that sense of belonging again, I guess. And uh, it was founded by Arno Bolensak and Julie Ravel, and both had been in, uh, with Osho Bhagwan in India in the 80s and then had gone to Germany. And I think mostly out of a desperate money need, Arno, the founder of the cult, um, decided to get Julie Ravel to be a medium. He told her she could channel, she could communicate with spirits, and together they pretty much stole Ramta from uh, JC Knight. They they copied, um, yeah, just they made it made it German, mm -hmm. uh, and started doing workshops and making money and uh, recruiting people in that sense. And before too long, started a small commune of about forty people, moved to Austria, then Portugal, and then eight years in Belize. So I. Um, it was 10, my brother was eight, and my parents moved with us to Austria to this new budding commune. That, I mean, obviously, they didn't know it was a cult, and then eventually it turned into something much, much darker than a fun-loving commune. Um, and by the time that we moved away from Austria and moved to Portugal, uh, child abuse started. And then to make sure that we were extra cut off from the world, we moved again to Belize, Central America, into the jungle. I mean. Uh, the little schooling I had gotten, so that was all homeschooling at that point, was stopped and we had to work full time and um, did an environmental project as a cover. And those eight years, uh, I mean, it was all intense, but feeling so lost and so cut off, it was really hard to have any perspective anymore. So anything the leader told us um, about uh, turning our body into light to become one with each other, become enlightened in order to save the whole of existence. Uh, long, complicated process, obviously. It doesn't make any sense in retrospect. <laughs> Never does. Mm -hmm. But at the time, um, there just wasn't anything else. And I once got asked later by my therapist uh, about, but what, would, what did I think during those 10 years? So age 10 to 20. Like, what were my thoughts about when I get out, then I'll show you, but then I'll do this. And I said, there wasn't. There was no when I get out. This was sink or swim. We were either going to, but we we're going to die trying. Basically, that was it. We were going to turn our bodies into lights, become one, and turn Earth back to its creation before the whole universe implodes. But all it was going to implode. So there was, <laughs> there was nothing. And the reason I bring that up is that I always wanted to be a mother when I was little. Um, and uh, then for those 10 years, 10 to 20, I was told that I would never have children. Uh, all the women in the cult had to uh, get a, a sterilized, what do you call it in English? Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and some of the men did. So basically no kids were, uh, they didn't want any babies. And, and to me, uh, because I was too young, obviously, thank goodness I didn't have to get sterilized because then I wouldn't have kids right now. But it was just not, it was not something I, so in my future, on top of it, I was told that I didn't have a maternal bone in my body. Uh, they created this really strange image of me, even though I was the oldest of the children and was taking care of them in some way, constantly creating games and trying to distract them from our very cruel surroundings. Uh, and I internalized that too. So even once I became a mother later, I thought I'd never be a good mom. So that is something that they took from me and from some of the women actually that then left and couldn't have kids because of that. 
you mentioned the term, the experiment. So yes, the family, you hear a lot. Uh, a lot of groups will call themselves family, the family, a family, whatever, family of something. But the experiment was what you just talked about, about transforming your bodies into light, or what was that? That was the idea, yeah. The idea was that at some point the universe wanted to look at itself, so it split itself into two parts and then into more and more and more, and Earth was the last part of the whole of existence mm -hmm. uh, of it splitting again. It was all becoming stable, and if we did not bring Earth back to the original center of it all, it would all just go poof. And so us 40, all of us were supposed to represent a part of humanity, some sort of aspect of humanity that we had to transform. And the whole idea was to not be you. I mean, that was it. Mm -hmm. Whatever you were was bad, unwanted, and you had to transform that into something different. But it was always very vague. And I didn't know exactly. Because I was 10 when I, you know, parents joined. So I kind of, I thought I was pretty all right the way I was. And I'd had a very mm -hmm. happy childhood up to then and a good sense of self-esteem. And that's probably the resilience that carried me through and helped later. But yeah, so they had to systematically teach me that everything about me was wrong. But I bought into it after a while. It didn't take that long for me to go. I'm a horrible person. I'm totally wrong. But then they left me hanging. And then I'm like, okay, now change it. I'm like, but, 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 how? I don't know. So yeah, it was very unsettling. Very much so. And I think about the pressure that's put on you at such a young age to feel responsible, to feel responsible for everything, basically, really, literally everything. I think that's what, um, especially for for those born into cultic groups, right? And and sometimes it's just, it's a family system. It's not even a cult or anything. Sometimes it's just a super high demand family system. But being born into that, um, I read somewhere the other day that you give up authenticity for belonging. Mm. And I think that that resonated with me. And also mm -hmm. just having to grow up way too quickly. I mean, I was a kid till I was 10. So that was that was a good chunk. I mean, if you look back at a lot of countries, by the time you're 10, you have to work anyway for the time to support your family. So I had a good chunk of my childhood, but so many did not. The youngest kid was five when the cult started. Uh, and if you're born into it, I mean, from the moment you're able to understand and talk and engage, all this pressure is on you to do the right thing, to say the right thing, to not embarrass your parents in front of the group. And then it's this uh, eternal right of wrong or damnation. Any little misstep can mean eternal death for you or your whole family or separation. And when you're a child separation from your parents means death. I mean, that's what it, right? That's the feeling inside. If I lose my parents, I don't know what I am. Or I don't exist anymore. Right. And so to tell someone, if you don't behave, if you don't believe in the same things as your parents believe, you will be forever separated from them and possibly hell or who knows what else. Right, right. Um, it's very scary. That kind of responsibility just completely takes away your childhood. All the lightheartedness, the fun exploration, the... I mean, what childhood should be, right? Just goes down the drain. I mean, it, sh it should be a time of just sort of abandon and innocence and you feel safe and cocooned. And a lot of kids don't have that for a variety of reasons, but it sounds like that was not at all part of your childhood from 10 to 20. And I'm wondering also, in terms of the leaders, what do you think was their motivation? I know this is sort of a side question. Right. I'm I'm wondering if you feel like they really believed or this was something they crafted in order to have power. 
I mean, not all leaders are psychopaths. Ours was, no doubt. <laughs> I'm really certain. Uh, he was also a sadist. He really enjoyed causing emotional pain and sometimes physical pain. So he didn't have any... Uh, he had very little empathy. Every now and then, something that looked like empathy would come through. And towards his own daughter, I think, is the only time I saw him express that. Um, but he knew what he was doing. I mean, he it was for money. However, he had himself possibly convinced. I mean, we lie effectively when, when we lie to ourselves, right? And I mean, I'm looking at terrorism right now and who who leaves and who might um, go back. How do we know mm-hmm. if someone is really out, out or if they're just physically out, but at any moment might join again and maybe cause more destruction? And I think part of the problem is that we don't know ourselves often what we're going to do. So much is chance. So much it's just the wrong person at the wrong time talking to you about something while you feel down. I mean, you just don't know. You ask a drug user why they started using drugs. It's like, it was just that one moment and something and this and that, and I wouldn't have otherwise. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's, um, yeah, so I think that our, the leader Arno definitely um, started out, uh, yeah, he learned from Osho Bhagwan how to do this. And he said mm-hmm. that, he mm-hmm. said that while he was alive. Uh, while the cult leader was alive and so he just copied and, and like any good psychopath he could exactly pick up on what worked to manipulate people and um, so in that case I think yeah he set it up he didn't have to work he uh, started sleeping with a 13 year old um, that was two years older than me at the time uh, he had it uh, made in a way for I mean I guess his pervert idea of happiness Turns out he was never fully happy. He didn't know what that meant. He didn't. He was jealous of all of us that could have real emotional connection, and hence he destroyed it. The, every time he saw anything, um, so he took all of us. He took the children away from the parents. He he just all the marriages were dissolved. He undercut any real connection that anybody might have, because yeah, jealousy. I think he just. He couldn't stand it. He couldn't stand seeing other people have something that he wasn't able to feel, which would be sad if uh, if he hadn't been such an asshole. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's hard to have compassion for someone who's a sociopath. I can understand it, but uh-huh. yeah. I mean, I know there are really functioning psychopaths out there or, or with those traits, right? People who, who have low empathy, who have who don't have those connections and they're functioning and they're trying and they and not hurting people around them, at least not on purpose. So so I know also you've had an opportunity to, to tell a lot of your story in other places. And so if people want to be able to hear you telling your story, I'm going to offer some links to some of the other yeah. interviews that you've done. Um, if you want to mention also where people might be able to hear more, because we're going to kind of go from the story and talk about some other things. Where can people access you telling your story? On Generation Cult, there's a podcast where I go into more of the chronological story. And then I don't know if there'll be something up on me per se, but the nonprofit that I'm co-founding right now, uh, strongerafter.org, there'll probably be more resources in there. So if anybody feels like they want to talk about their own experience or need help moving onwards, that's a good place too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very good place. You helped us with that. <laughs> so obviously, you know all about it. You sat through endless meetings trying to figure out. I did. 
I know all about it. Yes. And I want to be able to get back involved when I have time permitting, because it's a wonderful place for people to, who, who are just sort of landing, you know, and trying to take their first steps forward uh, and need some practical help and some emotional support and education. So Stronger After is wonderful. And uh, it was a great idea. And thank you for doing the lion's share of so much of the work to get it going. So I'm wondering uh, a little bit about some of the things that you said. And and I, I want to be able to also ask before I uh, ask about some of the things that you said and then move on from there. What was your parents' motivation in getting involved in something like this? I'm, I'm sure they didn't know what it really was because you never really know the full depth of the depravity and, you know, how, how sick it's going to be inside. What were they looking for? Um, my parents were both post-war generation in Germany. So uh, my grandparents had been uh, victims of the war or uh, perpetrators of the war. I mean, World War II in Germany uh, on different sides, different experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But either way, it completely messed up my grandparents. Uh, they had severe PTSD um, and alcoholism and interpersonal violence on both sides. And so my parents grew up with very, very distant parents that were controlling and verbally abusive and physically abusive. Uh, and on my dad's side, there was definitely also some neglect going on. So, And despite all that, they, they, they found each other and they were really sweet parents until I was 10 and they abandoned me but to a group that they thought would take care of me but before that my parents I had that really really strong trust in them and they respected me for who I was and just encouraged me and um, I mean, my dad might have yelled at me once or twice that I can remember in about 10 years which so it's really yeah they they tried very hard and, and I think they did great problem is that they still had all their own demons and issues and um Therapy wasn't exactly a thing in the 80s, especially not in rural Germany where we were. Mm-hmm. So rather than finding help and learning to communicate with each other, uh, my mom started drifting off into new age stuff. Just by chance, she went to take a Spanish course and that was canceled at the public library. And there was a course next door on some sort of self-improvement and that just led one thing to another. And before you know it, she's with a bunch of people who are looking to for enlightenment and and then I think they both, um, yeah, they, they joined the commune. I mean, they went a few weekends and it was one of those love bombing. I mean, complete and utter love bombing at first. Um, they felt accepted. They felt completely understood. And everybody was sharing and talking about themselves. And for people who came from a very cold background, it must have been quite the experience to be around other people that were so open about themselves. And they all didn't know that Arne, the cult leader, was uh, basically just gathering ammunition. Uh, all, all the sh- sessions where everybody was sharing and talking about their deepest fears, he was just filing that away. And over the next 10 years, he would use that against everybody and everybody that wanted to leave or didn't fall in line. He would pull out things they had said and use it against them. Mm-hmm. but they didn't see that they I mean and again it felt familiar a little bit so when he started to become more controlling and abusive um I mean they were both used to that both my mom and my dad so mm-hmm. I don't think mm-hmm. red flags went off it's more like well this is part of it sometimes part of life or part of it 
Right. But at first, I think it felt warm and fuzzy, and um, it was very specific about telling all the parents that they had completely messed up, that they couldn't raise the kids right. He went as far as telling one mom that she really should be uh, in psychiatric care, and then went on to say, well, it takes a village, and here's your village. And um, after a few of those weekends, I think my parents were ready to go yeah, we're in over our heads. We don't know what to do as parents. The whole world is unsafe and unsure and changing and we don't know what's happening. And all right, let's do this. Now you have a whole village. Now you have a group that will take care of you. And um, I didn't agree with that. I didn't want to go. My brother definitely didn't either. But uh, that's not how it played out, of course. We had Mm -hmm. no one in the end. So instead of having all these people, we had no real connection anymore. And we weren't allowed to talk to our parents anymore other than, I mean, just basic as lunch ready, but not not in that sense. I mean, it's only if they were cooking because it was all communal. So all the parents were staying in two giant roofs under the in the attic. All the kids were staying in another room, a level lower. Um, we had mattresses piled up that we would take down each night and sleep in different spots and nobody had anything of their own anymore. And then all the worms would walk around naked, go to the bathroom that we all shared and shared toothbrushes. It was just all boundaries were boom gone and they would talk about sex in front of us. They were, they thought they were so advanced and open and it was so liberating. And I mean, you know, if they'd done it without any of those kids around, whatever, right? whatever floats your boat, but that was not okay with us around. And it, um, yeah, it was very uncomfortable. And But the worst was that overnight we lost our parents. We weren't allowed to call them mom or dad anymore. We weren't allowed to go them and we were hurt. And we had two caretakers, two people that didn't have kids that were supposed to watch us and that didn't go so well. They had their own issues, a lot of issues. And at times they were trying to do fun stuff with us, right? But a lot of mm-hmm. times they were just trying to to keep us in line and and, and uh, manipulate us or control us in some way. Um, and one particular, she was really scary. So I just, she was the last person I would have come to if I felt sad or anything. And, and anything we told them, they reported straight to the girl yeah. and the medium. So so there were, and we knew that. So there was absolutely no privacy and... Uh, right. Yeah, and then we kids were told that we were just old souls in a child's body. We were grown ups, and that really had how it took all that. That so suddenly it was they made it seem like it was super trivial that we wanted closeness, that we wanted uh, that we wanted parents. We were supposed to not want any of that anymore. Mm-hmm. And again, the youngest was five years old, <laughs> so <laughs> she definitely needed parents. I mean, I at age ten was starting to probably separate a bit and be more independent Mm -hmm. so in a way it was traumatic but not as traumatic even for my brother who was eight at the time it was a lot worse Ah, my daughter's 10 now so I'm having a lot of a lot of stuff come back up mostly what's happening is that I before could lie to myself and just say well but I I was quite old already as I just did (laughs) two seconds ago (laughs) And now, and now I see her, and now I see how how much she um, how much she needs me, and how how much of a child she still is. Even though she sure she is changing, she is becoming more independent, but she needs me there, and, and she needs that safety. And um, yeah, my son is yeah. seven, so he's turning eight in half a year, and I'm just going. That is 
way too young, especially for a boy. I mean, to lose his mother. You know, when you when you talk about uh, wanting to become more independent when you're ten, I mean, there there's sort of this visual that I think about. I think about kind of a a, a safe system around you or a family system, if it's possible, that becomes uh, sort of the border wall around you. It's permeable. So, you know, you have some way of sort of pushing against it or whatever, but you can bounce around and you can leave where there are little openings to go off on your own, but then you can come back into the safety of it. And that you hope that something provides you with that. And if it's not your family, then it can be your environment or whatever else. But when it's all taken away, then you will sometimes then, or people sometimes have it then around themselves, like they can only rely on them and that they, they have to soothe themselves and they have to take care of what they need. And it's not always possible and it shouldn't have to be possible. Well, it's not just that. I mean, so yeah, overnight we lost, uh, I mean, I, I went to public school in Germany, you have to, so I had friends and teachers and then loads of friends I would hang out with and just bike to and see in the weekends and my relatives and I lost all of that overnight. So I wasn't allowed to see my relatives anymore other than once or twice a year when they made a stink. Uh, once or twice some old friends came to visit at the commune and it was so incredibly awkward and it was so weird that that I was actually happy when they didn't come back because they showed me how strange my new home was. When they looked mm-hmm. shocked, I realized how shocking it was. Mm-hmm. And that so it was really uncomfortable for me to 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 it, I couldn't keep up the I couldn't keep up the um oh everything's fine right. when they were around. Right. I, I had the, the right. cognitive dissonance, whatever, right? I had the that of like their few, my old few, and what I'm trying to convince myself of right now, but just that this is fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Didn't work when they were there. So I was actually happy when they stopped coming. And um so that just wasn't then we then we weren't allowed to leave. Um it was a big estate next to an old castle. We weren't allowed to leave it without uh, anybody else there. So so the few times we would go on a walk, all the kids had to go on a walk. The few times we left, um, once we saw a movie or once we went swimming, it had to be all the kids and the adult supervisors. So that there just was no time to be alone. So mm-hmm. A, that whole network fell away, but B, also... What I have done since I can remember, but since I started reading, is that my self-regulation involved sitting down with a book. That's always been, I was pissed at my brother. <laughs> I was upset with school. I didn't want to see my parents, whatever it was before I was 10. I would just grab a book and just go somewhere or I would just run out in the woods and run around by myself or with a neighbor boy and just be out in the trees. So those mm-hmm. two, nature and books, and both I wasn't allowed to do anymore. Um, I was able to eventually find some books, but it was really hard to just sit there and immediately if somebody interrupted me, I had to be alert and follow them and engage with them. I wasn't allowed to just shut off uh, and I wasn't allowed to leave or even go for a walk with myself. So, And so these relatives or people who would come to visit and it would, uh, yeah, you couldn't keep up a facade and the juxtaposition between their life and yours became uh kind of clearer i was going to say more exaggerated but just actually clearer yeah. and then it was very difficult were there times that they wanted to rescue you or they thought that they should do something um i mean talking to them later um definitely one or two of them thought about it 
uh, and went as far as basically just calling a cult, ex cult expert and going, hey, my son's in here, my daughter, what do I do? And uh, mm -hmm. that didn't really go far. And it's um, definitely really hard, somebody who's in that in love phase in the beginning of being in a group <laughs> to tell them anything, right? But I... Um, still a bit upset that in my mind there wasn't another option i think if, if one of my aunts especially had come and told me look we want you to live with us mm -hmm. um would you want to i definitely my brother would have said yes in a heartbeat and i would have followed out because of him probably um but yeah i wanted to be normal i wanted to go to school i didn't want all of this stuff so mm -hmm. uh no I mean, there mm -hmm. might have been some half-hearted thinking about it, but there wasn't ever a real attempt. And I mean, we had the first child abuse investigation, but we were still, I mean, just what, half a year into because grown-ups were walking around naked and somebody might have seen them from the street through the window. Right. And right. one dad was trying to fight for his daughter that was in the cult and trying to get her out. So he was talking to the media. So yeah, the first uh, investigation happened and. I mean, I don't know if that was my brothers and his kids in there. I, I would like to think that I would do more. Mm -hmm. But I also understand how hard it is. I talk to enough people who have loved ones in a cult or cultic group. And I also hate giving them hopeless. It's, it's really difficult, right? It's so um, unlikely. I think, though, the thing I would always try is to at least offer the kids could stay with me. That kind of thing. Uh -huh. It's like, look, if, if 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 they want an alternative, here it is. Right. Okay. Yeah. When you were saying, just in terms of needing to explain what the group was about, and you say in retrospect, it doesn't make any sense, but then you said, but there was nothing else. So that is often how these groups are presented. This is the answer, or this is the only way to keep the earth from exploding or imploding. This is the only way to be safe in this world, or no one else is going to be able to, whatever, answer your questions, take care of you, whatever else in the same way. People do often feel like there aren't choices. For them. And so when they get reminded of it, it can be very powerful, whether or not they take people up on their offer, just knowing that it's there can sometimes make a big difference, even though you've already probably by that point become afraid of leaving to a certain degree. I mean, that's definitely true. I think that when my doubts started to kick in way later, and definitely when the group was um, splitting and ending in a way later, I... Uh, I remembered all those times that a relative had said something, the few times that we had gotten mail and there was some criticism in there. It all sticks with you, right? So I think that it's an alternative narrative or whatever you call it, but there is just that this is not the only viewpoint. Now we both know there's no point telling someone, criticizing someone directly while they're in a cult. It's, yes, right. But I think in a way, just saying, okay, that's what you believe in, but here is my view. It's different from yours. Can you live with that? Can you just accept that? Can you hold your view while accepting my view or listening to it? And then that can maybe come through. And if nothing else, it'll just stay in the back of your mind so that as the doubts mount, as you mm -hmm. might be getting ready to go, as it maybe becomes a viable or safe option to leave the group, those things might stick. Um, but some people do it without zero 
impact from the outside world. So that fascinates me. People who are born mm. into it and who are who don't have outsiders telling them. I mean, maybe it's multi-generational, right? The third, fourth generation. There is no one telling them here's an alternate view. And yet something in them rebels and goes, that's not how I think I should be treated and how I want to treat others. Mm-hmm. Something in the system is very wrong. There's duplicity. Right. So something else that you that you were talking about, though, and I think this might be what triggers some people to think something is wrong, is that there, there was sort of the same diagnosis for everybody. And the same way that kids were all supposed to be seen, that they're old souls. And, you know, that happens in almost every group that kids can't really be seen as kids and have their kid needs because the leadership doesn't care yep. or doesn't know how to address that. So they just need to tell you, you don't have that mm-hmm. and you shouldn't have that. But I think the other part about, I mean, women not being able to have children, men not being able to have children, not being qualified, and that it's the same message for everyone. What that sometimes does is that becomes sort of a cautionary tale to people when you get involved in something and it's the same diagnosis suddenly for everyone, that that's going to be a huge red flag. And for some people, they'll say, actually, I from the start, I had a sense that that was wrong. I didn't feel like that fit me. And the more it gets repeated, the more there is this kind of dichotomy inside this cognitive dissonance where it just sorts of, your that voice becomes sort of louder and louder. Yeah. You know, I, I think about the people who sometimes will run even uh, groups for uh, couples or families and suddenly everyone seems to be having the same marital issue or everyone needs to be thinking about divorce. And then lo and behold, they have a whole group for people who are newly divorced. Uh, so suddenly everybody's gluten intolerant. <laughs> exactly. And here, here are our gluten-free products that we need to sell you. So I do think, even though I do think it is true for some people, but not sure. for everyone, same with every, with everything. But I'm wondering then, it, just going back to this idea, um, when you were told that you didn't have this maternal sense, but here as the oldest child, mm. you were caring for the children. I want to be able to hear a little bit more about that. And then we'll switch gears after that. But what did you do with the kids and what kind of games did you come up with and what did you see as your responsibility to them and how did you enact that in terms of their feelings or just helping to protect them in some way? Um, I've always been very creative. I I like to paint and write stories and everything and as a kid we would just have huge make-believe games. I mean pirates, princesses, forests, anything so it was pretty cool and and i think uh when we were taken out of school we suddenly had a lot of free time obviously as kids at the same time we had those strict supervisors and we but also all the adults were suddenly sitting in a circle listening to a thirty-five thousand year old spirit from atlantis and um laughing like maniacs and then crying like children and then screaming and it was all very disconcerting uh so we tried to stay away from that as much as possible yeah and, smart. <laughs> yeah um so I would just start, sit there and go, let's do this. It's like, all right, now obstacle course. Let's see who can get around this the quickest, who can we climb? All right, let's explore the castle. There was a castle close by. Let's go to the forest. Let's play Robin Hood. You're this, you're this, you're this. And, uh, or let's do, um, let's do playback. Let's pretend we're singing, we're rock stars. And let's all practice this one song. And it would just 
anything I could just come up with. And everybody went, yeah, sure. <laughs> let's jump on mattresses. Let's do this pile and let's see who can fall off the mm. funniest. And it was just, I mean, it comes pretty natural to me to be an instigator. Uh-huh. <laughs> like to do stuff all the time. Uh, and as a kid, especially, I would just constantly come up with new games and it, it um, I've always been super active and I think, uh, this whole sitting still and meditating or, or connecting with our quieter self wasn't for me any ever. And, uh, when we had to sit in on meetings, we all had to sit very still. So in the moment we could, I would just get outside. I mean, I could just see that I, obviously I was hurting, but the younger ones were hurting more. And I've always been able to probably just human, right? I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't see it in myself, the pain, because I couldn't allow it. Because that would have meant, what, what, what I mean, that I, I would have had to openly say, my parents are doing something that's not good for us. But as a child, mm-hmm. you always assume that they're going to do what's in your best interest until you have repeated evidence to the contrary and until you're probably in a safe position where you can leave that environment and go, yeah, that was shit. But if you're, if you're stuck there, what, what are you going to do, right? So I just told myself, our parents are doing what's right for us. They have our interests at heart. But then... My brother was suffering and um, haphazardly, but attempted suicide twice. And mm. I couldn't, I couldn't pretend that didn't happen. And so that, um, so I saw the pain. I saw the pain in him, and I saw the pain in others. When when mm-hmm. I couldn't quite feel it anymore, or was trying my damnest not to feel it. So um, I think part of it was to distract them from their pain and to pretend like it wasn't so bad. So I started to just come up with a whole lot of things to do. Very powerful. And how how old was your brother, if you don't mind saying, when he... He was eight. He was eight when he tried to... Yeah, yeah. and he tried to once jump up a really high tower. He was already sitting on there. They caught me. I raced up and um, he was already sitting on that ledge. And it was significant drop. I mean, several stories. Um, and so I had to talk him off there. And basically I lied and I knew I was lying. That was the kicker. I was like, our parents love us. They care for us. This is the right place to be. And I remember saying that and then talking him off and, and, and walking back later and going, do they? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, how do I know? Um, yeah. yeah. And I think the thing that I then I started to realize, well, I don't know if that's true. So I said, our grandparents would be really sad if you died. And that I knew was true. And mm-hmm. that still mm-hmm. held. Um, but that's what it got into. I'm like, I couldn't even say our parents would be sad about if you died. Because that was so far removed already. So I said, our grandparents. And I might have told him that I was sad, would be sad too. But that was, I mean, again, I tried to separate myself from my feelings because I was told to. Because mm-hmm. feelings were bad mm-hmm. and evil and we shouldn't feel anymore. But yet, everybody was suffering. I mean, the younger kids were. And then we had the uh, cult leader's daughter who um, honestly, I think, had some mental issues and just uh, learning disabilities that were unaddressed because the cult leader didn't believe in medicine, whatever. So, so he, or to a limited extent. So he didn't, um, so it was left unaddressed and she was just left to destroy us kids as the rest of them. She was second oldest, so I was the only one that was older than her. And she was tormenting the younger kids. She tried with me too. I mean, we were constantly fighting her and I, but I just really felt that I had to step in and protect them if I could. Um, That's not to say that I was that great. I mean, I I often 
snapped at everyone too and I was mad and I mean we all were just in free fall all of us and I was only 10 but still there's something I mean having always been an older sister and that definitely being part of my identity it's like Mm -hmm. I can mess Mm -hmm. with my youngest sibling but nobody else can (laughs) so Uh I definitely so they become my became my younger siblings and so yeah I did mess Mm -hmm. with them but no (laughs) I didn't like anybody else doing that and and then we kind of then that changed as I became at age 11 the grooming I mean grooming started at age 10 at 11 the first um, sexual encounters for me at least at age 12 uh, yeah that escalated um, not intercourse yet thank goodness but then at age 15 I was assigned to someone who was my dad's age and I think starting as I was drifting into the grown-up world as I was being pulled into that I, I lost touch with a lot of the younger kids uh, in a way uh, because they were still allowed to be children and I wasn't anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think I ris- I equally felt, oh yeah, I'm part of this grown-up world now. And that often is the case with sexual abuse or incest, right? Just that you, you become elevated at one hand, but you completely lose your childhood. You completely lose that, uh, well, autonomy really over your own body and yourself. And so I was confronted with that a lot, that they were still allowed to be children, but I couldn't openly say that I that I wanted that because the cult made it seem like um, sexuality was a part of your spiritual growth and becoming a sexually active woman, or in that case, teenager, was what my soul wanted, which is total bullshit, obviously, but... At the time, I thought that's what I was supposed to do. Uh, and again, I mean, belonging. Um, the cult leader demanded this, the cult leader said, and we had to jump. I mean, it was just, yeah. I mean, I kept still dreaming about falling in love with someone my age, but that was off the table. And that was made very abundantly clear. And the one time that I did uh, have a big crash on someone who was, his, his dad was working at, at that time in Belize as a cowboy, and and his son was roughly my age and yeah I had a huge crush on him and um uh I don't even know how it got out I mean I must have just smiled goofily who knows what or said something to one of the other kids and immediately I get called into the room where the cult leader and the medium um, were sleeping and they just tore into me for what I thought I was doing and this was just in a heartbreak and they had lived all those experiences so we don't have to and I was like but I want the heartbreak I want to have I want to fall in love. I want to, I mean, I was a teenager. Of course I did. Yeah, but I wasn't allowed to have any of those experiences. I was pretty much supposed to just fit the mold, right? As you said, um, Mm -hmm. and and women and cults, children don't have, they have to fit the obedience mold of Mm -hmm. little miniature adults. And women in Mm -hmm. most cults have to be either a mother or a sex object that is just, very little room and I was creative and intelligent and that did not have a space there was no room for that and so this man who you were assigned to then you obviously knew well because this was part of a smaller community yes uh, obviously I did I mean there were only so many people and it was the lesser of the evils I mean there were really horrible sleazy guys in there and then he thought he loved me and that made it slightly more bearable, but also much more confusing. 
Mm-hmm. because and that's i mean same as sex trafficking which actually in my experience kind of falls into that realm just because we were taken into another country i didn't have my passport anymore i was financially completely dependent was taken out of school i was i, I didn't have a school degree and um they applied all the pressure with the with the ideology which happens in sex trafficking often too and then he was assigned as my boyfriend so that language is used in sex trafficking often. It's like, this is your boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And it's not that you're, yeah. And that was very confusing later after leaving too, of going like, wait, I didn't choose this. It took me, it took me a few years to go, no, 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 no. Just because I wasn't able to say no, just because I didn't have alternatives, mm-hmm. um, in no way made it right or made, I didn't choose this of my own free will. Right. Um, then I was able to let go of some of the guilt around that, but yeah. So yes, it happens very often that uh, girls. I mean, it's it's a. I think it's a misnomer when they call them underage women because they're girls. Yeah. 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 I hate that term. I hate the term underage women. Yeah, and the in prostitution is absolutely of, of of sex trafficking victims is no, they're not prostitutes. They are being raped. I mean, if you're under eighteen, it's it's yeah. Mm-hmm. completely mm-hmm. wrong and what happened with the boys who you grew up with was it also something where they were expected to yeah. have sex with adults or only the no the boys too um they were a little bit older 17 so but yeah it um it, yeah sexual mm-hmm. abuse is sexual abuse and it's mm-hmm. it's horrific for both genders so it doesn't uh yeah. It still makes you feel objectified. It still makes you feel really dirty and it's right. difficult to live in your own body. And that's something that both my brother and I experienced. So I think it's just that being younger and then there's added vulnerability as a woman. There's definitely a whole another level of vulnerability. One more thing before you go. I'm so glad you were able to hear the first part of a three-part conversation with Katerina Meredith. Her story is so fascinating and heartbreaking and also empowering and insightful and has many twists and turns to it. So when we did our recording, it was kind of impossible to want to end the conversation because there's so much that I wanted you to be able to hear. So one of the things that Katrina talked about is this idea of giving up authenticity for belonging. When we talk about controlling environments and controlled relationships and environments, we hear a lot about conformity, peer pressure, sublimation, so much of it is what happens within those kinds of settings and relationships. I work actually with some younger siblings who say that they get along with their older brother or sister when they're alone with them, but often if their siblings are with their friends, they'll act in a way to impress their friends or become like their friends. So if their older siblings' friends are mean or sarcastic or insulting or treat younger people like they are an annoyance, that is suddenly how the older siblings will treat them. Giving up authenticity for belonging. P. 
people also give up their usual beliefs, political leanings, general likes and dislikes, and even behaviors that are aligned with their conscience in order to belong. We are social creatures and we conform for survival. So we're not banished from our community, from our family, but sometimes we do it all at great expense. One of the dangers of doing this over the long term is that we can forget who we really are. Another danger is that we can be left not ever knowing if we would have in fact been accepted by those around us if we had been at all different or had revealed that we were different or behaved kind of differently or believed differently than those around us. And worst of all, we can be left feeling like we breached our own conscience while we betrayed those around us. If we bullied people, that's sort of what's expected of us in a lot of these groups, that we hurt someone that we care about. We hurt someone who's part of our community. That happens in restrictive and controlled environments, kind of as a test. We're told to throw someone under the bus or we have to really be cruel to someone who is just as much of a victim as we are. And we do that as a way to solidify our place in the leader's eyes or to remain safe. To be authentic, kind of the common definition of authenticity in psychology refers to the attempt to live one's life according to the needs of one's inner being rather than the demands of society or one's early conditioning. I remember having a group of people who came to my office who wanted to tell me that I was wrong about the organization they belong to. This actually happens a lot, and what I find interesting is that I don't really go out to talk about different groups being bad, but people come to tell me their stories, and sometimes it gets back to the organization that I could sort of see their point and that maybe things were not as kosher, so to speak, in their organization as they thought that they were going to be at the beginning. So word travels. And I noticed about this particular group that word traveled fast, that I thought some things happening in the group were sketchy. So five representatives from this group that was sort of this mystical group came to talk to me. I was open to hearing what they had to say, as I always am. And they talked about their lives and how they felt for the first time in their lives like they were able to be authentically themselves and be appreciated for who they were as individuals. But as I looked at them, I noticed that they were wearing almost identical outfits purchased at the boutique owned by this organization. And they all had these red strings around their wrists to ward off evil spirits, all on the same wrist as well. And... They were drinking water out of bottles that had labels from the group that it had been somehow specially blessed by the leader. So they raised up their identical bottles of water and took sips while we all talked, holding the bottles with hands that had identical red strings tied around their wrists. And there was no awareness about the irony while they talked about authenticity while doing all of this. And that is also interesting to me, that dichotomy, but it's not dangerous per se. But the troubling part was revealed when they shared in very patronizing tones that they felt truly sorry for the psychological and social and emotional and spiritual limitations of people who had not yet opened their hearts to this organization and this way of thinking and this way of believing. And they kind of smiled as they said this, but still through their smiles said very insulting things about 
how people who had not availed themselves of these teachings were in fact in danger of not being able to be protected. And they said things like, the only reason people died of cancer or had been killed during wartime or had dealt with the loss of a child was because they hadn't been open to the gifts of this group. And they sat there, as I said, these very disturbing and horrendous things, still with benign smiles on their faces, speaking in kind of whispery and pretending to have sort of this caring tone, or maybe it really did feel caring for them at the time. So it went from kind of comical to ironic to condescending to awful and victim blaming and to what I call this sort of sickly smug superiority. And that's when it gets my attention and yours, I'm sure as well. And this is how it happens in cults. This is why many people who leave have so much guilt or kind of a nauseated feeling from remembering how they had adopted that sickly smug superiority, either because they really believed the message or it was a way to survive, which I do understand, or just because for some it felt good to be above all others. They had never felt that way before, but for whatever reason and lots of reasons, they turned into people or behaved like people or spoke like people who were really not like them, not like how they used to be. But conformity is something that doesn't, of course, just exist in cults. I actually remember when my son was in preschool and they were teaching the kids about shapes and they gave them circles and squares and rectangles and a triangle and they told them all to put these shapes on a piece of paper to make a picture out of them. One kind of shape for each person, meaning each person got one triangle, one square, one circle, etc. And then they put them up on the wall like a gallery. So when all the parents came to do pickup, we were asked to come in and notice the gallery. So we all looked at this wall of identical collages made out of these shapes, with the square being a house and the rectangle being a barn. And the triangle was a roof of the house and the circle was a pond. And clearly all of these kids had gotten some guidance about how to create their own pieces of artwork, most of whom had never seen a barn or had a pond. But my son's was the only one that looked different. He had decided to take the shapes and create an airplane so that nothing actually was on the ground. And instead the circle was a cloud and the rectangle was an airplane or the body of the airplane, and the square was the cockpit, and the triangle was the nose of the plane. And I still remember looking at that picture and having some parents look at me and kind of shake their heads like mm, they felt a little sorry for me. And having the teacher tell me that they would give my son a chance to redo it tomorrow because he had done it wrong. I'll never forget the word wrong. And I said that actually I would love to take his artwork home because it looked great to me. In fact, I got a creepy Stepford feeling when I looked at all of these collages that were identical. And when I saw that my son's name was on the one that was different from all the others, I remember thinking to myself, oh, thank God. The messages of conformity and being authentic and knowing also that it's not really safe and getting reminded that it's not really safe just to be truly authentic at a very young age, like in this preschool, 
Well, I think we all have to be mindful of the influence that this has on our lives and the way we sometimes very subtly influence each other in their lives. Talk to you next week. I'm excited to say that this podcast is now available on additional platforms. If you want to listen to Indoctrination, it's available for download on the NPR Radio Public app, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. We now have a big library of content that you can access with any donation. And subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.